Ever get the feeling that your reenactment group is maybe coming to the end of the road? On this edition of the Reenactors Corner podcast, we give you the lowdown on recognizing when it's maybe time to split, disband, or perhaps try something new. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again, excited today to talk to our special guest, Eric. Welcome to the program. Good evening, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here as a, as a longtime listener and someone whose long drives to reenactments are uh, filled with the sounds of the Reenactors Corner podcast. It's a bit of a fanboy moment. <laughs> well, we've we've been trying to get you on for a while, so I'm glad that we're finally able to do this today. This is it, yes. I mean, I was uh, thinking to myself today when it was that we were previously trying to get me on, and it's near enough a year. Um, I think I was, yeah. was going to be on with uh, Ludwig Topp having a chat about Feldhernhaller, but uh, circumstances conspired against us, but we're here now. Excellent. Um so I guess just for starters, for people who don't know what your background is, maybe you could just talk a little bit about how you got interested in World War II and how you got interested in reenacting. Certainly, yes, that's no problem at all. It all started, I believe, in Christmas 2003, where my mum and dad bought me a book called uh, Uniforms of the Second World War. And I was inexplicably drawn to the German uniforms um, of the early war period, and there's lots of little uh, c- coloured uh, images from essentially black and white stills that someone had colourised, uh, and I was drawn to the early war German uniforms, and off the back of that I then went to a uh, 40s railway weekend not too far from me, and it was one of those moments where I, I saw the reenactors, and there was a, a huge um, display of SS reenactors, it was the uh, the famous second battle group in uh, all of their in, in all of their glory at that point, and uh, I thought to myself, "This is it. This is what I want to do." Um, and ever since then, it it all uh, it all fell into place. I started reenacting Soviets in two thousand and seven, which was a bit of an odd one because um, my interest before that had been German, but I had a, a relative through marriage who had been a, a reenactor since the nineteen seventies, and he was reenacting Soviet at that point, and. That's what I fell into. And then a year or so later, I got into German reenacting with a, uh, a very well-known group at that point called GD Recon, which later went on to be uh, GD Aufklärungsgruppe, which uh, portrayed reconnaissance elements of the various uh, Aufklärungsschwadronen um, of the Großdeutschland division. And uh, that's where it all began, really. That's really cool. It's interesting to hear that you started with Soviet. Um, mm. Certainly, especially in those years, I think that was probably pretty unusual. I think, um, or at least in my kind of sphere of reenacting, most of the people that I knew years ago who did Soviet um, started off doing something else and mm. then did Soviet as a side impression. I think that's an interesting way to kind of jump into it. Yes, the um, it was it was quite interesting. A lot of the people who were in the group were ex-German reenactors, and I think it started off with um, uh, people buying a PPSH and channeling uh, Cross of Iron vibes, and then the uh, the famous 1993 Stalingrad film came out, and I think that uh, triggered a lot more interest. Um, so it was uh, it was a very interesting group to be in because it was like a retirement home for German reenactors who didn't want to pay as much for their kit, but uh, quite a quite a unique way to start it. So I guess today we're kind of going to focus on uh, talking about the subject of uh, switching reenactment groups, making the decision to uh, leave a group or to start a new group. Um, what's kind of what's going on with you in regards to that lately? So in um, recent years, um, almost carrying off, uh, sorry, carrying on from the back of that timeline we mentioned, um, the previous group that I was in. Um, up to 2018, uh, was portraying the Alf Clarence Grupper 
of Gross Deutschland. And um, like with all good things, they, they come to an end. And in 2018, um, myself and a few other uh, reenactors left that group. The group essentially split into two groups. Um, and we portrayed the uh, infantry regiment uh, Gross Deutschland. Uh, I believe it was the 13th company, um, of which uh, William Watson could tell you more about as per the previous episode he was on. Um, and then throughout the period of 2019, we reenacted that and had some fantastic events. And then, as we all know, in 2020, the big Rona came along and uh, and put, uh, put the kibosh on it. So the real start of changing groups and that sort of thing came about in 2020 when I met um, Ludwig Topf's Feldhorn Haller reenactment group. And again, um, it just became clear that um, people in group were changing interests and wanted to go off and do different things. And I had a realisation myself that actually I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do uh, a different unit, uh, Feldhorn Haller uh, in particular. And I also wanted to do a different period, so the uh, the later war period. And so I think that's really what um, spurred me on to think about this topic and uh, having a chat and and seeing what sort of interesting ideas are thrown up off the back of it. That's cool. I think that, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to other reenactors about how the coronavirus pandemic, the lockdowns mm. and quarantines and so on, were going to change the hobby. Yeah. And one of the things that I didn't even really think about was the extent to which I think people's interests might change during this time to the extent, the extent to which groups would change during mm. this time. It has been in my whole reenactment sphere, everybody that I talk to all the different units, um, it seems like very few people are doing the same thing that they mm. were doing in 2019. Very few people are doing now what I think they thought they would be doing in 2019. Yeah. I mean, I, um, it was, um, it was a unique time period. I was, um, when the coronavirus pandemic started, I was in an organization position within the Venn group. Uh, so I was madly, uh, trying to organize events and trying to keep things going and activities going and communication going, uh, at a period where it was the writing through, um, through external factors. Um, the writing was on the wall, uh, reenacting had to stop. Um, and naturally I think that triggered a lot of thoughts in people's minds where they think well actually this very expensive hobby uh, that I devote a lot of time to is it something that I'm definitely enjoying is it definitely something I want to continue to do um, and it's it's no surprise that people want to go off and then do different things after such a long period of rest um, I, I initially I agree I think yeah. there was there was an inertia there, you know, where people would just kind of go to the event because they went to the last one and they went to the same event last year and they go to this event at this time every year. And then that big interruption happened yeah. and it caused people, you know, it kind of broke that inertia. And I think, yeah, a lot of people decided to to step away or to hmm. do something else or do something different or maybe maybe this was the opening to start something that they always wanted to start you know it was been a big change for a lot of people indeed yes and it's um i i'll have to admit initially at the start of it um when interest started to uh, to uh, to drop off i i initially had the thought of oh well this is this is you know annoying we've you know we've built this fantastic thing and um you know, why, why is it the case that now people don't want to continue with that? Um, and it's only been over a course of, of, of maybe so a couple of years, in fact, of realising that um, interests change and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, at the end of the day, there's, I'm now with the opinion that it's much better to um, meet your, uh, your camarade at the beer tent all of you wearing different uniforms and all of you having gone off and started different things, um, and you all nonetheless be friends. I think that's more important now than dragging people along to events um, when they don't necessarily want to be there simply for maintaining continuity. 
I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's really interesting to hear you say that because I have been going through an almost identical kind of process of discovery lately. Um, people who follow me on Facebook have, have already heard about this. I haven't yeah. talked about it yet on the podcast, but I have disbanded the reenactment group that I started in 2014, yeah. Sikorang's Regiment 195. And I'm, I'm going to be moving forward with a with a different new uh, reenactment project that's going to draw from what we achieved together in Sikharang's Regiment 195, and oh. it's going to include some of the same people, um, but it's going it's going to be different. And uh, you know, I I have mixed feelings about it. It's it's kind of bittersweet uh, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, our groups and all the groups that I've ever been in as far as reenactment goes it's not just a a purely clinical um, a bunch of people who come together and sort of hatch a plan for how to recreate World War II it's a group of friends and it can be sort of tribal it can feel like a like a gang almost in some ways and I identified very strongly with this uh, unit that that I had started when I got started in reenacting, I joined an existing unit. Sikharun's Regiment 195 was the first group that I ever started. And, um, you know, I really, I kind of clung to it a long time. But ultimately, what happened was um, that our world has changed a lot. Mm. And the uh, the whole kind of all of our guidelines and all of our rules in the old group they were based on what the reality of reenactment was at the time that we started the group. And at the time that we started the group, we were doing events very, very frequently. Uh, now there are, there are fewer events since COVID. Um, the events that are happening are mostly smaller and the events that people in my crew are really excited about are, are really few and far between. And, um, it's also just become hard in some ways to get people to come out. Um, there, there does seem to be interest in reenacting, but then when the time comes to actually show up for the event, mm-hmm. uh, people's jobs have changed, the rhythms of people's lives have changed, and like you say, certainly people's interests have changed. And I, I haven't lost any friends in this, but um, the reenactment landscape is very changed. So. Basically, the choice for me was to either uh, disband the existing group and start a new group, or I would have had to have changed all of the sort of rules and guidelines and changed all the existing culture of how we did things in Sikharang's Regiment 195. And I think that it was just going to be too much. Yeah. You know, I think that it, it's easier to sort of make a clean break, uh, to turn the page, you know, I on some level, I kind of like that the old group that I was in sort of exists in a in a finite period of time. Yeah. You know, it started at one time, it ended at another time. Yeah. And I am still here reenacting. We're still here. We're doing something different. It's going to give us better opportunities to do things that that we haven't done before. And I'm excited about it. Indeed. Yes. I mean, we were um, when we uh, formed um, what's known as a. Uh, uh, Gross Deutschland Living History Group, which was the group we portrayed um, GD1 uh, with during tw- uh, between 20, uh, back end of 2018 and um, 2020. Um, the idea was that we we all had a very uh, keen interest in uh, Gross Deutschland at that point. Um, but at the same time, we didn't want to do something in a sort of declining manner. Um, you know, the, the Aufklärungsgruppe was a fantastic unit, and I, I really do have to shout out to the, um, the headsheds uh, who know who they are, who helped organise and run that group um, for many, many years over many difficult periods and through all manner of uh, reenactment group strife. Um, but at the same time, a lot of us felt, well, we don't want to do that a disservice. Um, the, the group and the hard work and the, the fantastic image of that group um it's sometimes better to put that in a box and consign that to the pages of history thinking that well that was a fantastic thing we had on to pastures new um because as well as making sure that uh at a at reenactment events you're not the group that used to be that particular group that was really good 
you can start afresh and you can have a new image. And it often, um, and I've particularly found, um, gives the hobby a new lease of life. Um, you know, we often talk about reenactor burnout, and particularly for people in a sort of uh, leadership and organization roles. Um, it's astonishing how much a new unit uh, and also a new time period completely revitalizes the hobby. Um, my um, years of reenacting have been spent doing a early to mid-war impression. Um, and it was then astonishing to then simply with a change of a, a uniform to an M42 or an M43 and some ankle boots and some gaiters and you know various, shall we say, quote-unquote, late-war paraphernalia that goes with it. Um, it, uh, it. It was like finding a new hobby. Um, and so that's really revitalized it for me. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, set of circumstances. Yeah, my first, the first time I changed units, it was a big change for me. I went from portraying a late war, frontline, uh, Panzer Grenadier motorized unit to portraying a, a rear area, uh, non kind of a non-combat mm-hmm. unit with an Eastern Front focus and kind of a, a push toward doing earlier war stuff. So, yeah. um, I, I mean, I it was I, that was another situation where it was kind of bittersweet because the what had happened was there was a sort of a unit split mm. the unit that i was in the uh the guy who had been in charge of that unit since that unit was founded stepped down uh in the aftermath of him stepping down there were some some upheavals and i sort of had an idea of how i wanted to reenact other people had ideas about how they wanted to reenact and ultimately I think it was best for everybody, for for me and the people that agreed with my vision to go away and start something new and kind of create space for them to do, to move forward what they wanted to do. And that unit, uh, 3rd Panzer Grenadier Division here in New England, they still exist. Mm -hmm. And they're probably uh, as big or maybe even bigger now than they were before we left to do our new thing. Um, I never really intended to like change units for many years i was really happy in the unit that i was in uh but look everything is changing all the time right everything yeah. is in the process of becoming the next thing that it's going to be and uh you know i'm i i certainly wouldn't i don't regret any of the kind of moves that i've made as far as uh, group identity in this hobby no and the um the the irony is and is I, I would say this is a a very good takeaway for any sort of for any sort of young reenactor, potentially, let's say, in a group um, with you know older individuals, or potentially two groups within a group, possibly with the chance of diverging, um, it, it'll, it'll be funny because you, you may all be reenacting again in the same group or at the same event, uh, like there hasn't been any sort of change in a few years' time, um, because you take a break from it, you come back to it and you realize you all actually want the same things. You all want to go out at the weekend and, um, you know, and have a very enjoyable reenactment. Um, and just with a little few tw- little few tweaks and a bit of space between uh, individuals, you never know. You may be reenacting all together in a similar organization, which is pretty much what's happening at the moment with some of the guys who left um, the GD Alfklärungsgruppe in 2018 we're all back in the field so it's a bit of a stranger strange occurrence that's really cool i remember that uh gd aufklärung unit back when they were called uh gd recon mm. i was like uh myspace friends with the old uh, gd recon like myspace account oh uh, fantastic back in the pre pre-facebook <laughs> reenacting days yeah um yeah you know what 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 that unit i guess uh, evolved and changed over time uh, you know That's, what what was that like um it was uh it was a fantastic group to be in it was a group that was um i think um the the guys who were the real leadership and vision um uh chap by the name of neil uh, another fellow by the name of carl uh, another fellow by the name of simon uh, and numerous other individuals who helped along the way um they all took over that unit in about 2007, I seem to remember. Um, and it was a group full of new ideas and full of new thoughts on how to do things. Um, so 
it was the group that you saw at an event and you thought, I want to be part of them. And I remember thinking that as a young Soviet reenactor collecting German on the side, and I thought, yeah, that's a group that's going places, and that's a group that I want to be in. And there were some really um, revolutionary ideas for the time at that point, because it was um, a time when social media was just starting to dawn for reenacting, um, and the sort of the the photos that were taken at events, uh, rather than just being a couple of snaps um, on someone's you know pocket digital camera. Uh, where there was cars and modern things in the background, uh, people were having ideas about, oh, let's do photo shoots where all of the photos are really accurate and there's a storyboard behind it. And it's not just a case of a couple of miscellaneous photos, really. And our unit commander at that point, I believe, was a graphic designer. And so it was really quite revolutionary. I remember we scored some, what we thought were big firsts for the time. We had... um a very famous factory shoot at a, a, a disused factory that was being demolished uh, down in the southeast of England. And it was the first sort of thing at the time. And we remember putting up these photos and everyone on the old forums, you know, losing their minds over it, really. You know, it was, it was just sort of recreating original photos in, uh, in this disused factory. Um, and a lot of those photos are now passed off as originals. We all have a bit of a laugh and a chuckle when they get posted up on these original photo pages because we can see ourselves in them. Um, and it was, it then went on from strength to strength, from photo shoots to websites with uh, lots of in-depth articles and sort of uniform displays on the website uh, to being a group with its own corporate video uh, at a time where no other group had a sort of corporate recruiting video uh, of, of a week long, oh, sorry, a weekend long documentary was done about us, about our training weekend, so new recruits could see what it was like to be a member of the group and what we got up to. And uh, then we moved on to vehicles. And at that point, we, well, I certainly remember a lot of reenactment groups were kicking around with vehicles. However, it was often a case of, well, we'd like a motorbike, and oh, it wouldn't it be nice to have a half track. And uh, yeah, let's get a Nurbelwerfer in there as well. That'll that'll look good. Um, without sort of thinking, okay, well, the unit that you're portraying, did they actually have these bits of equipment? Or is it just a case of purchasing uh, display pieces um, and, and running the risk of your display uh, descending into a bit of a car park? So we, um, at that point... Uh, that's when we moved over to uh, calling the group uh, Aufklärungsgruppe because we would have various elements within the group uh, portraying various parts of the reconnaissance arm as a whole. So I believe we had a few people um, when we got the armoured cars. We had a, a triple two armoured car, a two two three armoured car, and a two four seven, um, which was scratch built but two four seven. Um, and they portrayed, I believe, uh, first squadron, and then we had individuals on motorbikes and sidecars, and then we had we had a, um, a converted gas, which we had uh, converted into a stower. Um, so we had a cross section of the, un the vehicles and the uniforms of the Aufklärungsgruppe. So, and all throughout the period from uh, 2008 when I started. Um, you know, up to 2018, it really was a group of firsts. Uh, looking back on it now, um, <laughs> there are certainly a few reenactorisms creeping in uh, in the cold light of day. Um, I think the group we had, we definitely had a fetish for A-frames. Um, <laughs> it was uh, it was a bit of a unique thing, but again, at the time, it was um, it was a group of firsts, and there were a lot of reenactment groups in the UK in the early noughties, with a few exceptions, um, where it would be a case of no uniformity, wear whatever it was you like, um, and a case of there being variation, but not accurate variation. So someone wearing a, a splinter smock and another person wearing a splinter helmet cover. Uh, so we were one of the first groups to have a very strict, um, almost corporate image, shall we say, of what could be worn and what couldn't be worn, which in turn led to reenactorisms because there are very few photos of uh, 
the Aufklärungsgruppe of Gross Deutschland <laughs> using A-frames, but having 30 bods troop onto the field, um, you know, all looking the same, all looking uh, like one unit, um, it had it had a beauty of its own. So it was a it was a fantastic group to be a part of. That's really cool. Yeah, I remember some of those photo shoots from uh, more than 10 years ago. I remember there was like one photo of a guy, I think he had a gas mask on or like maybe like a fixed bayonet coming through like a smoke cloud or something. Uh, yeah. It was like such a great photo, you know, <laughs> and uh, even now, sometimes I'll see photos from those photo shoots. If I do a Google image search when I'm trying to find something quick, some uh, photograph of something to illustrate, um, you know, some original photo to illustrate some point I'm trying to make or something and I'll see photos photos from that time and, and recognize them for what they are. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it was it's one of the most interesting ones, actually. Um, a, uh, an author wrote a book. I believe it's called uh, Strath Battalion. And uh, on the front cover of it is myself and one of my colleagues, Simon. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you can clearly see, uh, it's. It, I think there's GD insignia on show. And we were recreating the famous Stalingrad photo of the MG34 team, where there's the sort of the MG34 in the background, and then this guy standing up behind it on the higher rubble. Um, and uh, when we saw that, I, I think it was I think the the individual took the took the picture from the public domain, so there was very little in the way of um, any sort of like uh, IP infringements and so on. But it was hilarious then for this book to come out and seeing this book on reenactment stands and myself and Simon going up to the stall holder and saying, oh, can you tell us a bit about this book, please? Can you tell us about it? And it was us on the front cover. So <laughs> we, always, we always enjoy doing that. <laughs> At one point, I started to use the word propaganda to describe the um, content that we were making at reenactments that was geared towards getting out there on social media mm -hmm. and getting attention or promoting whatever project we were working on. Yeah. And uh, I think that, you know, GD Recon certainly, in my memory, were kind of an innovator of that stuff, which now um, almost on some level, I feel like we're kind of living in a, a post-propaganda era yeah. because uh, you can't post stuff on so many platforms where people would see it. And some, a lot of times if you attract attention, you're more likely to attract negative attention than positive attention. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so also different now. Well, this is it. Yes. I think we're, um, we like with all things, the, um, back in the old days, um, photos would get posted up, uh, after events on the various reenactment forums as they then were. And, um, it would be the case of, people would you know naturally pop up and say oh well your button your top button's open or this isn't quite right or that isn't quite right um i remember a lot of photo shoots all of the media and all of the hype off the back of it and it being absolute silence on the forums afterwards and it was at that point we knew that um you know we were doing a lot of these photo shoots right um i think i seem to remember us discovering the facebook live stream uh option in about 2016, so we went uh, into full influencer mode of, you know, uh, give us a like, share, and comment in the section below, <laughs> and all this sort of thing. And uh, so, yes, the um, the Instagram reenactors, we we may have played a little bit of a part in it. <laughs> well, that was like a huge thing around 2016. That was like a good strategy. Ooh. I think that around 2016, 2017 was probably the height of a lot of World War II sort of interaction with uh, social media, yeah. um, dynamic type of thing. And of course, now all of that stuff has kind of faded into the background to some extent. Well, this is it. And I, I think it's, um, you know, on the, on the subject of groups changing and um, interests changing, it got to a stage where for a lot of us, it was becoming a job thinking about, right, what content have we got to put out there after this event? What's the latest um, idea that we're going to come up with? What We've got to find something new. Um, and for, when one of the individuals who was working within the leadership of the group, in fact, heading up the group, um, was a graphic designer, um, it becomes a bit of a busman's holiday. You leave work on a Friday night having done one thing, and then you go to your hobby where you like to relax and so on, uh, and it's doing the exact same thing. So, um, and that's that's really when it started to climb. It's becoming a bit of a job for a lot of individuals, and 
you know, trying to feed that website. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You know, you guys, I, I know that in my experience, um, reenactors who put a lot of effort into their unit impression and, and do the research and are out there promoting the project can really on some level, in some ways, uh, maybe almost to an unhealthy degree, start to kind of uh, relate to or s- associate themselves with the actual historical unit that's being portrayed. Um, and I think that's something that can come into play sometimes with changing units too, where um, you know I could imagine a person who uh, gets involved in a reenactment group, does the research, learns all about that original. Uh, formation to the extent that they can they know all of the firsthand accounts from the various actions that the unit participated in they know the names of the unit commanders and so on and so forth you know down to company level and then the culture of that reenactment group maybe changes as as the culture of all groups inevitably does change over time and i've seen uh, situations where people can be can find themselves in a group that really isn't aligned with actually doing the things that they want to do, Ooh. but they don't want to leave or even aren't willing to leave because they're um, they're just so focused on the unit, you know, the historical unit being portrayed that they're not willing to make a change. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it, I, I I certainly agree. It's um, it can often be a case that the uh, obsession or the fixation, shall we say, with one particular unit, then almost becomes so intense. Um, it become re- portraying that unit is no longer the key, um, the key goal. It's the, it more becomes a case of we're a firm and this is how we do it in a very certain way, um, and that can often lead to people thinking, right, well, I. I don't want to be involved in that because I want to reenact in a different fashion. And I think that it's also then, um, it, it can trigger a lot of reenactors burning out um, because whatever they then try and do, it will never be as good or it will never quite be the same as the way it was done in the old days. Um, and like with all uh, hobbies, it's a learning experience and there will be change. And I think one of the key things that I've picked up over the last, um, you know, two years, and it's something that I'm, I'm still having to do, uh, is almost learn how to entirely reenact again and how to slot into a new group and to almost leave the the mindset of what was, um, how reenacting was done in 2008, um, leave that in 2008. Um, things have changed, standards have changed, equipment and vendors and so on has changed. And certainly with the advent of things like uh, you know, immersion and um, the nature of events being completely different, uh, it's just, it is a steep learning curve. I think you make some really good points there. You know, I have myself, I think at times, um, chatting with some of my old reenactment friends, I've realized there is this risk that you could... Um, find yourself in a situation where instead of reenacting 1944, you're trying to reenact 2012. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the thing is, is, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but, uh, look, my, my standpoint is, is that, uh, reenactment has changed a lot Mm. in recent years and that the hobby as I knew it, um, is, is basically gone and, and probably not coming back, you know, yeah. or, or certainly doesn't show any signs of coming back anytime, uh, particularly soon. I mean, what, what is the situation where you live? How would you characterize how things have changed for you? Um, well, I, I would say um, there's been a significant amount of change. Um, when I first started, got, uh, when I first got into reenacting, um, it was a case of um, heavy amount of public shows and also a large amount of private battles, which I, um, I hope the correct comparison would be um, what a lot of you chaps over there call tacticals and so on, where it's we all troop into the woods and you shoot blanks at each other and so on. Um, and in, certainly at the start of reenacting, there was a, when I was doing it, uh, there was a lot of uh, Ministry of Defence, like army training sites, uh, available for use at a very reasonable rate. Blank ammunition was much cheaper. Uh, fuel was much cheaper, kit was much cheaper, 
Um, so the things that I got into in that respect um, oh, since the recession in 2008 um, and tightening up of gun laws successively over the course of the last 15 years uh, meant that the things that sparked my interest in the hobby um, you know, I really enjoy the private battles and then the sort of public events, but the good public events, um, a lot of them declined. So what I've seen certainly in, you know, in my reenacting and also uh, being a group leader and trying to organise events of that sort of 2008 style, shall we say, it's a fantastically uphill battle. Um, and the advent of, um, you know, full immersion events um, over the course of the last, shall we say, six years, um, that again has been a tremendously steep learning curve because a lot of the people I reenact with, um, they struggle to get their head into that mindset because there was a lot of, you know, potentially what we call nine to five accuracy going on. I don't know if it was similar in the US where it's uh, both public events and private events the uh, battle the battle would take place between roughly about nine to five in the daytime or the display would take place between nine to five in the daytime and if you had things such as a modern gas stove uh, to cook up your breakfast or a sleeping bag uh, provided it was all tucked away in the zelt barn um, by the time the public display was starting to kick off and by the time um, the battle was starting to kick off in the woods um, that was acceptable there were a lot of groups who were okay with that. Um, naturally, there were groups who were completely 100% uh, accurate, shall we say. Um, but again, what I think um, that's meant for me is coming from that mindset and coming into 2022 and reenacting with people, you know, just shy of half my age who have been raised on full immersion completely, it then becomes a very fine balancing act of potentially uh, bringing people back into the hobby who started in that 2008 mindset with all of its standards and so on um, and then gearing them with individuals who um, may potentially go white if you say oh do you are you bringing a sleeping bag along to this event so it, the, the change has been colossal um, and I think learning and adapting to that change is um, is, is really difficult. I mean, one particular example, I think, that illustrates the, um, the, the dilemma of a unit leader um, was in 2019. Now, the GSG MP40s, the blank firing MP40s, came out onto the UK market uh, roughly at that point. And there was a lot of people in the group at that point who wanted to do private battles and tacticals, but because of one reason or another, they couldn't get the relevant firearm certificates to own a live firing K98. And it was difficult because the only other weapons were the um, MGC MP40s that were converted to fire blanks. And, and the UK gun laws, and in particular the blank firing weapon laws in the UK, um, front venting weapons, I understand, are not legally permitted. Um, it has to be a top venting weapon so that it's not a weapon capable of discharging shot. Um, however, what a weapon capable of discharging shot is, is a completely different grey area. Um, so it meant that even the alternative, the blank firing MP40s, one, were unreliable, um, a legal grey area, and two, all, and three, um, not always accurate. Um, you know, you, you often look like 1970s movie film Germans running around with loads of MP40s but it got to a point where a lot of the chaps were wanting to do private battles um, the cost of armourers were prohibitive so hiring and firing weapons was no longer an option um, and then something came on the market which was not 100% accurate uh, having an entire squad armed with MP40s or a large part of the squad armed with MP40s um, not accurate in the slightest um, however, at the same time, as a group leader, um, all of your chaps are turning around to you, a lot of whom are from that private battling era, saying we want to do private battles. So it's uh, a very interesting one trying to then balance that 
and then trying to bring that sort of 2008 mindset, shall we say, into the present age, particularly when it comes to then merging different groups of differing mindsets together and hopefully all still enjoying ourselves and having a good weekend and coming out of it as friends at the end. Sure. Yeah, you mentioned different mindsets. Uh, to me, that's that's such an important aspect to this whole discussion is just, um, you know, ideally, I think that it's important for everybody in a group to share the same mindset. Yeah. In reality, uh, look, World War II reenactment is not a gigantic hobby. There aren't, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of World War II reenactors enough so that every single uh, way of looking at the hobby can be represented in every region with its own group of people who think exactly the same way. I think perhaps now more than ever, finding a way to have people with different mindsets in the same group yeah. is, you know, really important. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, uh, prior to the podcast, me and some of my uh, uh, younger camarade and in Feldhorn Haller Group were chatting about immersion events, and and I readily put my hands up and said I struggle to immerse. I don't know if it's the fact that I've got work on Monday, or if it's the fact that having done it for so long and having been raised in one mindset, shall we say, I then struggle to to immerse. Um, I, I, I don't know what the solution really is, but, you know, a lot of younger reenactors may not have that difficulty. Um, so there will naturally be that change in mindsets. Um, and I think one of the key things that I've learned over the course of the last, you know, two to four years is how do you manage that balancing act of differing mindsets because can you really change your mindset when reenactors who may have potentially been doing it 20, 25 years or so then get put in the same squad as a reenactor who is of a completely different mindset and there may be a, a cultural and generational divide? Um, they certainly get on and have a you know, huge amount of respect for each other and see each other as friends. But can you get those two individuals to meet with a common mindset, um, I'm yet to find a way to do that. Um, and I'm you know, happy to put my hands up and say, well, the many individuals I reenact with, I, I would feel that we have different mindsets in respect of certain things. Sure. Yeah, you had me on the edge of my seat there. I thought you were going to say that you had like found a way to do this. Um, <laughs> and I have not. You know, no, it's, no. I, I have experienced the exact same thing and, and kind of left me with more questions than answers. Yeah. You know, um, you know how th there are differences. There are for, you know, you mentioned generational differences. I went to an event recently. I, I remember when I started reenacting 20 years ago at most of the events that I went to, I was one of the youngest or the youngest person there. Hmm. And I went to a reenactment recently and I was definitely the oldest person there. And I had a lot of fun at the event, and I'm glad that I went, but it certainly was very different, Ooh. you know? Well, this is it. I mean, when I, when I first started reenacting, um, my nickname within the group was Young Eric because I was younger than anyone else there. Uh, I remember Neil, the group leader, saying to me, I literally have jumpers older than you. Um, and, uh, and, and now I'm taking up that mantle with some of the people who I reenact with. Um, so that's so funny. It, it really is. I mean, I remember. Um, you know, it, it's. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying not to sound. One of the key things that I, I must. I tell myself when I'm reenacting is, you know, try not to sound like every five minutes like sort of the stereotypical Facebook boomer reenactor of back in my day. We used X, Y, and Z, and we could only afford this, that, and the other. But I had to admit, um, it did strike me. I sold. Um, well, I gifted, I should say, uh, my original belt that I first had when I first started reenacting. And I remember being on parade, and this thing was the smallest belt on the market. And Neil came up to me and grabbed the belt and looked me in the eye and said, put some bloody weight on you, because it, it, <laughs> he, could, he could pretty much just get it round his, uh, his thigh. Um, I mean, you know, he, he, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he won't mind me saying he is somewhat of a girthy gentleman. 
However, at the same time, um, I then gifting that belt onto someone who was probably my age and my size as I was back then. It was a very interesting rite of passage. But um, but yeah, um, that meeting of individuals with mindsets um, and all all flying under the same flag, well, all, all marching under the same banner, is is very difficult. Um, and I, I hope that. Uh, I hope that for reenactment as a whole, um, it's uh, it's something that we can find a solution to. I I do want to be the first to know because over the course of the last, let's say, um, eight years, um, I have known reenactors in the hobby pass away. Um, You know, reenactors who I've been very close with and reenactors, you know, who we have had differing opinions on certain things and had cross words. Um, and it's, it's not worth losing that time, quite frankly. Um, I would certainly say the, even if there is no way of meeting minds of younger reenactors with older reenactors, there's nothing worse than the idea of, well, you know, falling out with people and, um, and potentially, you know, losing mates and then, you know, losing years. Uh, thinking, oh crikey, why did you disagree and why did you fall out over something so trivial as reenacting mindsets? Um, so yeah, another good, good takeaway to uh, take away from this if you're a young reenactor listener. I think that's great, great perspective. Um, we got kind of a lot of stuff uh, still to cover. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's kind of get into you know sort of the nitty gritty of um, you know changing units, the decision to leave an old project, mm-hmm. start a new project. Um, you know, when do you th- have you ever seen it where somebody left a unit or um, started a new unit, joined a new unit, whatever, and then regretted it and and went back? I mean, I I certainly could yeah. see something like that happening. Yes, I um I, I remember um. I remember in roughly about 2012, um, certain individuals leaving the then unit and, uh, and and sadly burning bridges, which is something I would always advise never, ever, ever to do in all walks of life. Um, and then those individuals having to come back. And I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with leaving, realising um, a new unit's not for you, and then coming back and, you know, hopefully coming back to it fresh and happy. Um but if the bridges are burnt, it then makes that tremendously difficult. Uh, so I have seen it happen, um, and I would always advise against burning bridges, no matter no matter how uh, how tempting it may be. It can be hard to leave a unit um, without hurting feelings. Mm. Um, when I left the first unit that I was in to start the the new group that I formed, I tried hard to smooth everything over and in fact i wanted to remain a member of the other group i want i i you know i told them very honestly uh, you know i'd like to remain a member in good standing of the group um my new group is going to be my priority going forward i don't know to what extent i don't know what if any my participation would look like in the old group now that i've got this new thing that i'm focusing on but you know if you'll have me i'd like to remain and they were like okay well no yeah you you can't and uh it's it's stung a little bit but um i guess i understand the reasons why and uh you know now years later there are some people that are members of that group that are also members of even my new project and so you know we do get along but um there is there are some emotions there's uh there's pride that comes into play there's long friendships that can be jeopardized when you make these kind of moves so um, it can be a lot to think about no certainly i i certainly would agree i I often think that time and space is a real healer as much as it may seem very hard to leave a group uh, of people that you have uh, worked with for many years if there is a reason that is prompting you to leave if you stay like with any sort of relationship um, there's a likelihood that it will fester and you know it will lead to greater fallouts um, whereas if it's ended in a civil fashion um, it then makes it very easy for all of the individuals to step back um, to take some time away from it and to um, you know as I have you know as I've seen over the course of the last year or so all get back in the foxhole uh, again together at some point and um and be happy and uh and overcome those problems 
I, naturally, there will be a group stages where it's like, well, no, I think it's just better we part ways and we never see each other again. Um, but yeah, as long as um, as long as you always try and be civil, I think if there's, there's any sort of scope to get back together, like it sounds like some sort of dating advice this does. Um, it, it, well, it, it, it feels, it can really feel like, that, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I have had, uh, you know, I have had a lot of re- important relationships in my life and, uh, sometimes the amount of time that I spent working on the reenactment group interpersonal relationship thing mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, equal to or greater than the amount of effort that I was putting into my, my personal relationship, you know? Indeed. Well, this is it. I, I, I think after the most recent event, um, I, I certainly came to the decision that uh, um, being in a group and certainly being in a leadership role within a group where there are other individuals around you in that leadership role, almost like a, a board of directors, it's it's like a relationship. If you have a fallout or if you have a disagreement, you don't um, you know you, you don't completely walk away from it. Yes, you have a bit of time. You take a little bit of a break, and then you say, okay, right, so. Um, let's solve this. This is um, what we have uh, is um, is better than um, having some sort of little argument and a disagreement, because there will always be a way of solving it, no matter what the problem is. Um, the solutions may be quite drastic. Let's say, for example, if you say, well, we can't solve it, we just need to part separate ways and join a new unit, or I need to take some time off from the hobby. Um, or if it's a case of where well, we need to do a little, a couple of tweaks within the group. Um, I myself have noticed over the course of the last year or so that I've my reasons for doing the hobby are somewhat different to what they were previously. Um, because of the line of work that I'm in, I now find that the, the reenactment is a relaxing process um, for me. And so there's got to be some sort of relaxing game from going away to an event and if if sleeping in a muddy puddle for an entire weekend ahead of a five-hour drive home is what the hobby is going to be then that may not be the thing so i think um yes any sort of uh, any sort of tweaking process is really a good thing when it comes to being in a new group and understanding that learning curve uh you know when do you think that it's time how would a person know that it's time to maybe make a change, either that it's time to try to get the group to change or time to uh, join a different existing unit or time to start a new group? Well, I would always say if there are things that you're unhappy with, try and engage in a dialogue that promotes change. Because if the other people in the group are willing to listen and to make tweaks, that will be the catalyst for those changes and tweaks being made. Another point is, if the week before the event, you're thinking, oh, crikey, I've got to load up the car, I've got to get my kit and uniform squared away, and I've got to spend all this money to go off to this event, and I really can't, really not in the mood for it. And it's not just a case of, I'm a little bit tired from work, or something isolated is annoying me. Um, That's often a telltale sign of, is there a need for a serious change? Do you need to be in a new group? Do you need to change what it is you're doing? Or just do you simply need a break? One of the things I've done recently is um, one event every two months. Now, this has been driven by financial factors. Um, but as well as that, I've noticed it's really given me a new lease of life within the hobby because it's no longer a case of, having to gear up every single month, it becoming somewhat of a job. And I can get that sense of uh, fear of missing out when I see other reenactors posting up their stuff in the month break between. Um, so yes, it's, uh, it's quite an interesting experience. I, I like what you're saying there about sometimes uh, less is more when it comes mm. to attendance at reenactment events. I mean, I'm, I'm going through the same thing myself right now. I used to do an event a month. And in fact, there were many years that I probably did uh, over 20 events in a year. Yeah. Um, and now I'm looking at doing four to six events a year. Yeah. And it's a big change. Yeah. But um, so far, it, it, it's good. You know, I... I enjoy reenacting. I enjoy using my stuff. I enjoy preparing for the event. And it's just, there's just more time in between. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I've always got some projects to work on, you know? Oh, yeah. It's um, the hobby itself never stops. 
even doing one event every two months. Um, whether it's being able to maintain kit, put greater administrative time and effort into the organizing the events that uh, one's doing, um, or, or reading all of the books on the bookshelf. I mean, I've amassed a massive pile of uh, German World War II related history books. I would probably say less than a third I have read. Uh, so it's uh, it's odd for the first sort of month off. It's strange not thinking, oh, crikey, I've got to be organising this, that and the other. But uh, it, it, it does become very comfortable. It does give it a new lease of life. Yeah, it's tough for me to say looking forward exactly what the future holds. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking now about what you said about having to learn you know, having to navigate the learning curve of reenacting all over again, mm-hmm. almost like doing it the first time. And mm-hmm. I kind of feel like that's the situation that I'm in now with this new project that I'm starting. We're we're trying to do some really different things yeah. uh, in a very changed landscape. And um, I really don't know exactly what my project or what reenactment locally here is going to look like in a year or in two years. Yeah. Um, but I know that I'll, I'll be there and I'll have some kind of presence in it. So oh, definitely. Um, Certainly, you know, I'm looking forward to see what the future brings. Yes, uh, likewise. I mean, I um, it's reenacting with individuals um, who've been in the hobby since the mid '70s. It really does show that as long as the individual makes those little tweaks, and you, it, there's a high likelihood it's not going to be right first time. And even over the course of an entire year, there will still be improvements and there will still be tweaks that need to be made. Um, but as long as the individual keeps at it, I think, and uh, changes the bits they don't enjoy and keeps the bit they do enjoy and stays civil, then there's nothing to stop you from staying in the hobby for many years. I mean, someone asked me, oh, what are your retirement plans when you you know, become um, not the right age for a frontline soldier? And I think I said, I'll just simply take off one ammo pouch and put on an M16 helmet and, and that's that's my retirement plan to to, to portray a real line unit because I, I just intend to stay doing the hobby. Sure. No, I love it. And I, I love that there are endless options for um, people, whether they're older or not as fit, or they just don't feel like portraying a frontline combatant anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm seeing more and more of that kind of in reenacting uh, people doing more immersive rear line kind of non-combat or support element type stuff, or even civilian impressions or Volksturm. I mean, there's, there's so much out there. Yeah. And I think as long as the individual is willing to give something new a go. And uh, I think as long as individuals are willing to um, embrace reenactors who are from different mindsets uh, and, and, Endeavor to help them learn, or uh, to understand that you may not change this individual. I think reenacting as a whole um, will continue to be a very hospitable place. Um, I've, I've I've often said because um, a lot of the guys who I reenact with are much younger than me, and then also uh, another section of my friends who reenact uh, I reenact with are also a lot older than me. I've often felt somewhat as a piggy in the middle between the two generations. Uh, and I think as long as everyone from regardless of their generational background and reenacting um, mindset background can understand the other and tolerate the other and understand that there will be differences and different capabilities as well, um, physically uh, in particular, um, the reenactment scene will continue to, I'd hopefully like to say, flourish or certainly least maintain. A lot of former military members kind of are drawn to reenacting. Some of those adrenaline rushes kind of kind of come back. There's no perfect unit out there where everything is just nirvana. And, you know, there's going to be butting heads. There's going to be different ideas. There's going to be instances where it's almost like middle school or high school drama. Not only are events being cancelled, but Soviet reenactors, often reenactors who have supported the same shows, for years and years are, are essentially now being said that they're, you know, being told that they're persona non grata. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Eric, I think we're pretty much out of time, so thank you very much for coming on. It has really been a lot of fun talking to you tonight. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here. I, uh, I'd like to thank you for having me on and uh, 
yeah, I, I look forward to listening back to myself when I'm journeying along to the next reenactment. Excellent. Yeah, I feel like we kind of just scratched the surface of stuff that we could talk about. So maybe we could have you on again uh, for a future episode. Oh, it, it would be a pleasure. It'd be a pleasure. And uh, thanks for staying up late to talk to me. I know this uh, talking over the Atlantic stuff is uh, tough for uh, for you guys. So I, I do appreciate it very much. No, no problem at all. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So uh, thank you, Eric. Thanks to all the Patreon supporters, especially without you guys, we couldn't keep the podcast going. So we really appreciate your support. Um, so to all the listeners and everybody out there, I will see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how happy or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month. As ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us here again at The Reenactors Corner. Corner.